also turn with me to page 524, where we find the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord, page 7. Page 524. basically 
them. And they say that we must believe. They continue, continually tell you, you must believe, but they never exactly define what we ought to believe. And that's something about the emerging, the emerging truth church. They never want to say, uh, this is right, this is wrong, this is what we believe, this is what we don't believe. That's not their style at all. Uh, and this follows along that kind of thinking. And the writer of this article in Christianity Today, he says this. Um, he says, it's really hard to read their books and confidently declare yourself a Christian at the end. And he goes on to say that the radicals, these new radicals, they emphasize the spectacular. And so to simply sing the simple songs of the church, you know, to trust and obey amazing grace, uh, these kinds of songs, uh, that's not enough. That's outdated stuff. Um, they're looking for something more spectacular. And they look for a, a, what is called a second blessing, um, which means that you are then, in their minds, filled with the Holy Spirit, which... Uh, to quote the writer, lifts us out of our carnal state into the really spiritual life through the presence of the Holy Spirit who now dwells in you. And uh, from what I can understand, you can actually feel it. You feel almost like you're lifted off the ground and you're in an exalted state. The inter interesting thing about this new movement, which is nothing new under the sun, but the writer points out uh, the interesting thing about this new movement is how closely it resembles a 19th century movement called the Keswick Convention. And the Keswick Convention was a pietistic movement with an emphasis on the inner, higher life, a way to really experience your faith. That's what they sought after and chased after. It was a way um, uh, to transcend the ordinary. And as with all attempts to replace a simple, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, it evolved into a work of righteousness, as it always will. Now, I mentioned these things this afternoon as we are preparing to talk about Lord's Day 7 and, and what is true faith. Because sooner or later, if you haven't already, you're going to come across someone who is going to try to make you feel somehow lesser of a Christian. Somehow as a, an inferior Christian because you don't have the experiences that they have. And they'll make you feel as if, well, I don't really have the spirit because I don't have this... Uh, this joy that seems to exude out of this person. I don't have this feeling of, of, uh, of being on high always like this person. And so sooner or later, you're going to run into someone, uh, one way or the other, and they will try to make you feel inferior. And while we would never in the church suppress our calling to be growing in our faith, to be uh, seeking after the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit, we need to remember, especially in this day and age, that experience and emotions are very deceptive features. Our faith is objective. It's not subjective. We believe because God has said, not because of what we feel, which can change from day to day and moment to moment, not because of any kind of excitement that we can work up in ourselves. And so with this in mind, we want to look at Lord's Day 7 this afternoon under this theme, the church confesses the place of true faith in our salvation. The church confesses the place of true faith in our salvation. We'll see in the first place the necessity of salvation or of true faith. In the second place, the description of true faith. In the third place, the content of true faith. Well, let's examine first this gift of true faith in terms of its necessity. And uh, question and answer 20 asks, are all men then saved by Christ just as they perished through Adam? And this question finds its root in Lord's Day 3, back in uh, question and answer 7, where we confess that man's corrupt nature came from the fall 
was in the Garden of Eden. Adam, as we know from Romans 5, was our representative in the Garden of Eden. And so when he fell, we all fell in him. He brought us condemnation. He brought us death. He brought us judgment. And so the reasoning behind question 20 is, well, if all human beings, if all of mankind, all of Adam's progeny, if they all fell in the first Adam, well, is it possible then that all are saved in the second Adam, which is Christ? Well, answer 20, as it faithfully summarizes scriptural teaching for us, replies, no. Adam's fallen children need true faith to be saved. Now, in some ways, we say this, but if we really reflect on it a little bit, sometimes it can bring us a little bit of sadness. Only those are saved who have true faith. And, and this is a sad confession because we know many people who do not confess the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are many people, in a, perhaps in our lives, whom we love and whom we care about. Perhaps even relatives, maybe even children, who seem to have chosen death rather than life. Who seem to prefer darkness rather than light. We have friends and acquaintances, we have neighbors, we have relatives, we have co-workers who seem to want nothing to do with Christ. And to the offer of the gospel, they say, no thank you. In no uncertain terms, I'm fine just the way I am. I want nothing to do with it. I don't need to go to church. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And so when we confess with the catechism that not all are saved in Christ, just as all fell in Adam, there's a tinge of sadness sometimes in us even anguish. We grieve as Christ did over Jerusalem when he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The congregation's teaching from scripture is clear. As much as we would like to hope that God will save all in the end, the words of Jesus sober us when he said in Matthew 20, verse 16, many are invited, but few are chosen. He taught in Matthew 25 that on that day of his triumphant return, he will separate the sheep from the goats. His enemies will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous will go to receive eternal life. In John 10, verse 25 and following, we hear Jesus declaring to the Jews of his day, they did not believe because they were not his sheep. He said his sheep listened to his voice and they followed him. And let us not, not forget the words of the angel that appeared to Joseph in Matthew 1, verse 21, who said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And so the catechism, as it faithfully summarizes biblical teaching for us, declares that not all men are saved in Christ as they were lost in Adam. The death of God's Son was of such infinite worth that it was certainly sufficient to cover all the sins of all the world. But it's only efficient, it's only effective for the sins of the elect, those who place faith in Jesus Christ. And so faith, we are, re we are reminded this afternoon once again, isn't merely a doctrine in our confession, something we have written in our book, some plaque we, we have hanging on our walls. Faith is a necessity. Faith, we might say, is the channel, it's the pipeline, the empty hand of faith that reaches out by which we receive the benefits of Christ. And the, the benefits of Christ become ours. And the bottom line is, without faith, we have no relationship. No one can ever have a relationship with Jesus Christ without faith. Without faith, we have no access to what is an 
those are saved who by true faith, says the catechism, are grafted into Christ and accept all his blessings. Think about those phrases for a minute. Faith enables us to be grafted into Christ. And we have to be careful because that almost sounds like a good work that we have to do in order to get something. If we do this, then God will do that. And that's not what we're confessing here. What do we hear in, in this answer? We're grafted in. At the end of the day, it is always, always God who acts. We are the ones who are acted upon always. We do not earn a place in the kingdom of heaven. God grafts us in. Paul speaks of us in Romans 11, verse 24, as wild olive shoots grafted into the olive tree, contrary to nature. A shoot, if you think about it, cannot graft itself. So what we're confessing is that the great, the great vine dresser has sovereignly and mercifully taken us, wretched sinners, and grafted us into, joined us to Christ. But he first gives us the gift of faith. Again, he, first, he acts first. He gives us faith to make us graft worthy. But what about this whole business of accepting all his blessings? For here again, we're not to let our sinful pride take away from the glory of God. Because the fact of life is, left on our own, we would want no part of God. In contrast to Arminianism, we do not believe that salvation is a choice that we are able to make. Think about what Paul says in Romans 8 verse 7. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Left on our own, none of us would even desire Christ, much less stretch out our hands to him. And so herein lies our dilemma. If we are to be saved, we must accept or embrace the work of Christ earned for us on the cross. Faith must take hold of these blessings and hide them in our hearts. But left on our own, unregenerate and, un, uh, and, and depraved, we would never do this and we could never do it. But here's the good news. God gives what he calls us to. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, we hear those well known and well-loved verses, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And so the question, are all men saved? We must confess with our catechism that no, they are not. True faith is, ne is, a, is a necessity, a gift of God. But if we confess that faith is a necessity, then we need to know what it is. We need to know how to identify it. We need a description, which is what we want to see in the second place. In question and answer 21, we were asked this. What is true faith? And we answered, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. And it's good for us to ask these questions from time to time and to refresh our understanding of, of these kinds of terms. Uh, good to be reminded, for instance, of what exactly we mean when we speak about true faith. What exactly do we mean by that? Notice well that in speaking of true faith, the confession is, is putting up a danger signal, a warning. Because you see, it's possible to possess a kind of 
imitation faith, a hypocritical faith, some kind of a substitute faith. But the catechism helps us to identify the genuine article and reject the counterfeit by pointing us to the two parts of true faith, knowledge, knowledge and conviction, and deep-rooted confidence or assurance. Notice again, the catechism written in 1561 uh, doesn't talk about, or 1563, doesn't talk about how excited you are. It doesn't talk about how, many, how big the holes are in, your, in, your, in the knees of your jeans, which seems a way uh, in which we classify how Christian you are these days. Uh, it doesn't talk about how unworthy you feel in your heart. It talks about knowledge and conviction, deep-rooted confidence or assurance. Now, let's talk about knowledge and conviction first. Another way of saying this is that true faith includes knowing and believing. We must know what God's word teaches. We should be familiar with the content of the Bible. There's good reason why Peter uh, writes to the church in 2 Peter 3, verses 17 to 18. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forevermore. Amen. So growing in knowledge protects God's people from false teachings, from false interpretations, from error, from building our faith upon feelings and emotions. Faith rests upon knowledge of God's word. And so we must know. That's where it begins. We must know what the scripture teaches. What does it contain? What does it tell us about the, the creation and the fall of man? Of God's promise to save us. Uh, his preparation for the coming of the Savior. The life and teachings of the Son of God. His death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. His sending of the Holy Spirit as he now sits at the right hand of the Father. We must know that God has revealed himself as triune. That this God is gathering a church for himself all through history. And that having chosen a certain number, he calls them and justifies them and sanctifies them. And he has glorified them. And that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. So we need to know these things. We, know, we need to know the content of the Holy Scriptures. But not only must we know, we must also believe. We must be convicted. We must be convinced that everything God reveals in His Word is true. It's not for us to pick and choose what we want to believe and what we don't want to believe. This shows itself in a very tangible way. Think of what we read of the Thessalonians. They turned to God from idols to serve the true God. In other words, they believed the promises and they acted on it. Their faith showed itself in what they did and how they responded. That was true faith. They saw the uselessness of their former religion and they rejected it. They turned their backs on it for the sake of Jesus Christ. True faith is conviction. It's being persuaded that Jesus Christ is the only way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through Him. But the Catechism goes on to say that true faith also includes a deep-rooted confidence or assurance. Well, what does that mean? It means that we are convinced it means that we are confident. It means that we are certain. And this certainty is embedded in our heart. But where does this assurance come from? 
chapter 21 remind us that it is created in us by the Holy Spirit. It is Christ by his Holy Spirit who has made us alive when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. It is the Spirit who has replaced our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5, Paul writes this to the Thessalonian Christians, Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. For the gospel to take root in our hearts, something is needed. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit. When the word of God is preached, the spirit of Christ softens our heart of hearts. He bends our wills. He inclines our thoughts. He implants the true seed of faith where there was no faith. And he gives us assurance that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness and salvation out of mere grace only for the sake of Christ's merits. This is how we identify true faith. We are assured that the benefits of Christ are mine personally. And yes, we all, every Christian would, would agree, we have our moments when we struggle with doubt. Our faith quite often is a series of ups and downs, highs and lows. We get frustrated quite often at the weakness of our faith. We wish that our confidence in God um, in his salvation could be consistent. We look at our sins in our lives that we have been struggling with and praying about sometimes for years already. And sometimes the last thing we feel, consistently anyway, is deep-rooted assurance. But you know, these are the moments, these are the times when we allow the flesh to take control of our thoughts again. When we begin again to look at our own strength and we take our eyes off of God's promises and his faithfulness. But even though we may have, every Christian has these weak moments, these low times, generally speaking, faith says with confidence that for the sake of God's grace in Christ, I know, and that's not just church's confession, but I know, me personally, that I have been forgiven, that I have been made forever right with God, that I have been granted salvation. I believe it because God's word says it and because God does not lie and he does not change his mind. But as we search out this gift of true faith, we want, want to also see in the third place its content. In verses, or um, question and answer 22, we're asked, what then must the Christian believe? We answer all that is promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith teaches us in summary. The catechism reminds us that a sound test of our faith is how we relate to the Bible. Faith looks to the scriptures. The sheep look to the voice of the chief shepherd. We must be bound to the entire word of God. But over time, the church has seen it necessary to formulate creeds. The word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. The Apostles' Creed, for instance, is a faithful summary of what is taught in the scriptures. It gleans crucial teachings of scripture that unite us as Christians in faith. Now, not that creeds such as the Apostles' Creed must ever be elevated to the status of equality with the Bible, nor must they ever cause us to halt our study of the Scriptures. The creeds aren't meant to somehow convey to us that we can get by with the bare minimum, but they provide a faithful summary so that we might have a test for orthodoxy. 
We might have a school for evangelism. And we might have the means to teach our children the doctrines that we know are biblical. The way I explain it in my catechism classes are that uh, the creeds and confessions are kind of like fences that you would have around you. Especially if, you're, uh, if you are uh, involved in farming, you would have fences around your property. But what do the fences do? On the one hand, they protect uh, what you own from predators, the wolves, uh, the false teachers and the teaching. The, it keeps out heresy from drifting into the, to the church. But on the other hand, the creeds or confessions, they act like fences in that it pro- they provide a protective guide around us so that we ourselves do not stray out into dangerous pastures. And that's why we hold to this creed and our creeds and confessions very faithfully. And that's why at the end of it, we sing, Amen. And that's our way of saying, absolutely, certainly, that is the truth, and that's what I believe. They contain everything a Christian must believe. And so as we search out the gift of true faith, we see that the content of true faith is summarized for us in the articles of the Apostles' Creed. Well, sadly, in our day, even in churches that still retain the name Reformed, uh, but sadly in our day, in many Christian circles, creeds and confessions are seen as outdated. Uh, They're relics of the past. We have no use for that. No creed but Christ, they say. But if you think about that, that's not even practical. Did not the Lord himself warn us of false teachers? Did, Did he not warn us about tears among the wheat? Did he not warn us of savage wolves who would come in and tear the flock apart? Christ warned the church to always be on our guard, to be always watchful. And the, things like creeds and confessions are a way that we can do that. We can implement this through standing on guard and making sure that false teachings and heresies don't drift into the church and that we don't drift out into um, teachings and creeds that are uh, in error. Through the creed, we're also denying any room for individual opinions. We're confessing with the church of all ages and around the world today that there is only one God, one Savior, and one way of salvation. And so, congregation, what is true faith? True faith is the means by which we become possessors of Christ and all his blessings. True faith is a gift from God created in our hearts by his Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. And we may be confident that what God has begun in us, he will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. True faith is not a good work. It's not an emotion. It's not an experience. It's assurance based upon knowledge. And so as God's people, let us confidently confess the words of our creed, even as we pray in our hearts, Lord Jesus, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Amen. Let's turn once again to number tw- hymn 28. And let's rise and sing stanzas 5, 6, and 7.